Hello and welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. On the unceded homelands of the Mohican people, known today as the Stockbridge-Munsee community, I'm Sina Bazilahiki. And I'm Jacob Boston. Today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, we begin with Mark Dunley's coverage from a conference held to discuss the Packaging, Reduction, and Recycling Infrastructure Act. Then, Brea Barthel talks with Ian Houck, head of the Adult and Reference Services at, Choi, at the Choi Public Library, about ways to get passes to various museums and state parks. Later on, Brea Barthel speaks with Friends of Five, Friends of Five Rivers Environmental Education Center, which offers which offers fees for the census. After that, Cafe Euphoria will be joining us in the studio to talk about their upcoming Lunar New Year celebration. Finally, we have this week's episode of Rhythm Abelian, where Taina Asili talks with musician and trans and queer activist Evan Greer about the riot folk genre and her early life as a musician. But first, here are the headlines. The Times Union reports that New York may close up to five state prisons this year to increase efficiency and save money. One of the prisons being considered for for closure is the Great Meadow Correctional Facility, a maximum security prison in Washington County that can hold up to 1,611 inmates. Great Meadow in Comstock is adjacent to the medium security Washington Correctional Facility, which holds up to 734 inmates. Lathan-based fuel cell maker Plug Power is selling up to $1 billion in stock as it tries to shore up its, fi- shore up its finances and high spending and losses, amid high spending and losses. The news led to a quick 14% fall in the company's stock price as more stock usually ends up devaluing existing stock. Plug Power, which has lost nearly $4 billion over the years, raised $2 billion in 2021. The New York Racing Authority will hold a February 21st job fair to line up the hundreds of people needed to operate the track for the relocated Belmont Triple Crown Race in Saratoga in June. The traditional summer season for Saratoga Race Course is July 11th to Labor Day. Quad, a magazine printing company with more than 400 employees at its Saratoga Springs facility, plans to close its local plant after four decades by May 4th as the company consolidates operations in other, sa- in other states. The Times Union reports that at least $1 million of contributions linked to the real estate and development industries bolstered the campaign accounts of Governor Hochul and the state Democratic Party in the past six months. The contributions came as the governor remains at odds with Democratic leaders in the state, legislature who want additional tenant protections as a part of the housing policy plan. A fire on River Street in Troy displaced four households in Troy on Thursday afternoon. The 11 individuals included four children. Channel 13 reports that there is an increased public outcry in the city of Albany over the need to do more to stem the rising levels of violence. Albany police reported 20 homicides last year, and within the first three weeks of 2024, there have been five more killings. The State Department of Environmental Conservation has opened up public comments for the controversial Saratoga Biotrasluce facility proposed for Moreau, Saratoga County. The DEC also announced virtual and in-person public comment hearings on February 7th and 8th. 
They will also accept written comments from the public until March 4th, 2024. That's it for the headlines. For those of you just tuning in, you're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, listener-supported radio that builds community in Troy and the surrounding capital region through broad grassroots participation. Our content is produced by volunteers. To learn how you can contribute, go to mediasanctuary.org, email us at hmm at mediasanctuary.org, or call 518-272-2390. Earlier this week, a conference was held to discuss the Packaging Reduction and Recycling Infrastructure Act. Mark Dunley was on the scene and talked with various supporters of the bill, including the lead sponsors of the bill, the chairs of the respective legislature committees on the environment, Assembly member Deborah Glick and uh, Senator Pete Harkham. On Thursday, January 18th, state lawmakers and advocates held a news conference calling for adoption of the State Package and Reduction and Recycling Infrastructure Act. The bill will reduce plastic packaging by 50% over 12 years to dramatically reduce waste, improve recyclability of packaging, and slash greenhouse gas emissions associated with plastic, which are on track to outpace the emissions from coal by 2030. It would also put a modest fee on packaging paid for by packaging producers. The City of New York has officially backed the bill, and more than 200 organizations and businesses signed a recent memo support. In part one of our coverage, we hear from Vanessa Vahan-Turner, Executive Director of Environmental Advocates New York, who served as a moderator. We then hear from the lead sponsors of the bill, the chair of the respective legislative committees on the environment, Assemblymember Deborah Glick and Senator Peter Harkham. We then hear from New York City Council Member Sandy Nurse, who until recently was chair of the Council's Committee on Sanitation, and Blair Horner, Executive Director, Nyberg. Can't recycle our way out of this problem that we see growing around us every day, because only 6% of plastic actually gets recycled. That means 94% of the plastic we think we're recycling actually ends up in landfills across New York and New Jersey and beyond. The only way forward is to reduce how much plastic we use. That's why we're here today, and that's why we're so grateful to our bill sponsors and thought leaders with us. I'll now hand it over to our bill sponsor and Assembly Environmental Committee Chair, Assemblywoman Deborah Glick. It is uh, vital that we make this a priority this session. This bill appropriately shifts some of the burden to manufacturers, uh, but does so in a way that seeks to incentivize them making changes so that over time, it costs them less if they reduce their waste. Uh, We, anybody who thinks uh, about it for two seconds realizes that we have an enormous amount of excess packaging. Much of it has become plastic because plastic is lighter than some other materials, uh, but much harder to get rid of than other materials. Uh, So this is a way of encouraging the uh, manufacturers to reduce their packaging, thereby uh, saving on the fee that they will be charged. But it is uh, about fairness and making certain that it doesn't fall only to the taxpayers uh, through our municipalities to uh, dispose of 
this excess packaging. If anything, the pandemic demonstrated that people's behavior has changed and they more than ever are seeking to have things delivered directly to them, which only adds to the additional packaging that we're seeing and that we have to dispose of. Uh, it makes all the sense in the world to also require more recycled material in the packaging so that we have a market for those materials that can be recycled, uh, cardboard and the like. Uh, but it's going to require a change, a change in our behavior, a change in the way in which manufacturers do business. In so many instances, their packaging is part of their marketing. And so they're going to also have to redesign their packaging. They're going to have to rethink their um, the way in which they use that packaging for marketing. Uh, but we don't have a choice. We see one community after another having landfills that are polluting their communities that are uh, impossible to close because we have more and more waste. The only thing we can do is to reduce the waste at its source, use more recyclable materials in that packaging, and to get rid of the plastic that is becoming not just microplastics, which were terrifying enough, but now nanoplastics, which are uh, causing health uh, and safety issues for not just wildlife, which we were aware of before, but now also human health. And those chemicals are changing our body chemistry in a way that is very concerning for future generations. So it is up to us to take a stand today and make certain that we make the changes that are crucial to ensure that we have a livable planet. Thank you. Bill Sponsor and Senate Environmental Committee Chair, Senator Pete Harcum. Um, so this legislation is, is absolutely necessary. And it just does four simple things. It reduces packaging so that we reduce what's going to our landfills and our, our waste incinerators. It will improve recycling and recycling infrastructure. It will financially support municipal financial uh, municipal recycling programs. And as was mentioned, will reduce toxins in, in packaging. It is just so essential that we get moving on this. Four other states that have this, they do this in Europe. This doesn't cause the sky to fall. And as, as Deborah mentioned, this will actually, in the long run, reduce the cost to manufacturers and packaging producers because they'll, they'll have to produce less packaging. But this is about our environment. This is about our public health. This is about um, our natural resources, the amount mineral and raw material extraction that goes into the amount of packaging. So there are a lot of benefits. And, and ultimately, this will save New York taxpayers over $450 million annually. $250 million in New York City, $200 million in the rest of the state. And that's just for starters. So this is a win-win for taxpayers. It's a win-win for public health. It's a win-win for the environment. Um, and and it's been a long time in coming, and we are committed to really working hard and making this our number one priority to get through this year. 
Um, I'm very happy now and very excited to meet New York City Council Sanitation Committee Chair Sandy Nurse. So in 2022, the council passed a resolution in support of this act. And in 2023, the New York City Council passed the pretty transformative Zero Waste Act that set diversion targets by 2030, mandated citywide curbside organics, and increased community access. You know, the city really did its part to set us on a path towards zero waste, but we understand this is an incredibly ambitious framework that requires action at all levels of government, really to catalyze more circular economies and tackle waste from production to disposal. This is also a major economic issue for our city. While New York City faces major budget cuts, we're still being forced to spend nearly a half a billion to export our garbage, much of which is still made up of single-use plastic. And then beyond the financial cost, there really is a human toll here, and it is a racial justice issue. The fact that our waste system is killing us um, is alarming. You know, Black Americans and those living below the poverty line are more likely to live within two miles of petrochemical plants and are dying from pollution-linked cancer and other diseases at disproportionate rates. And the only way out of this is to use less plastic. So it's really time for the state to pass the Packaging Reduction and Re Recycling Infrastructure Act. Um, this legislation really is going to be a significant step toward ending the ongoing public subsidy for corporations who take no responsibility for the end cycle of their products. Plastic is a major climate problem. It's a public health crisis. Plastic fabrics are in our food, our water, inside our bodies. You know, it's in the air that we breathe. New York City has seen a major increase in packaging plastics and paper waste, driven especially by an increase in delivery services such as Amazon. Blair Horner here um, representing as the head of NYPERG. New York State, like much of the rest of the country and the world, is facing a climate crisis and a solid waste crisis. Innovative policies are needed to handle both. This happens to be an area where you've already heard crises overlap. So our hats are off to uh, Senator Harcum, Assemblywoman Glick, for advancing these proposals, uh, for the strong support of the city council by council member Nurse, uh, and all the advocates that you've heard about. There's a lot of, you can always talk about crises, but you ultimately have to do something. And as Judith mentioned, this would be legislation that would set the standard for the country, and if America leads, the world will follow. Critically important that this legislation be taken up and moved. This has been Mark Dunley for Hudson Mohawk Magazine. That was Mark Dunley with part one of his coverage on the conference to discuss the Packaging Reduction and Recycling Infrastructure Act. Looking for a way to beat cabin fever? We'll look no further as Bria Barthel talks with Ian Houck, head of Adult and Reference Services at the Troy Public Library. Here we're going to learn about these passes that allow free entry to various museums in the region. This is Bria Barthel for Hudson Mohawk Magazine, and I'm here at Troy Public Library to get information on a program that a friend said she didn't even know existed and she wanted to hear more about it. So Ian Houck, head of, uh, current head of Adult Services and Reference Services, is here to tell us about how you can check out passes to local and not so local museums from the library with your library card from any place in Upper Hudson Library System. So Ian, 
what's going on with this? Yes. So uh, here at the Troy Public Library, we have our Museum Pass program. It is open to all UHLS cardholders. Um, the Pass program, we have various benefits, but what the library did is we purchased a number of passes to institutions, uh, local and not so local, that you can get by just signing them out. It is a first-come, first-served basis, uh, unfortunately. We do not have a reserve system because these things really do circulate very heavily. And it is a three-day loan that you have the items for. And we do ask that each household only take one pass at a time. Um, but we do have some of the... So these are household passes. It's not just like, okay, there's one entrance. It's, it's for, you can use them for group Yes, yeah, so each pass is different, um, but we know, for example, one of our most popular passes is for the Mass Mocha um, over in North Adams. And what that, when you check it out, your admission will be free for two adults and for two children. Um, that is fairly consistent, um, but other museums we have are the Eric Carl Museum of Picture Book Art. That's in Amherst. That's free for adult, uh, two adults and four children. And then another very popular one for the spring and summer is we have the New York State Empire Pass. And what the Empire Pass gets you in is for any, uh, it's by vehicle and parking at the New York State Parks and uh, many of the Department of Environmental Conservation, DEC facilities. So it's listed as part of the museum pass, but it's actually to get into parks. Yeah, um, we we put it into our um, pass system um, because it works very much the same way. Um, and it was uh, better that way than separating it out. And this is a pass system that they've really been pushing the past few years. And you'll find this at many libraries. Um, some of the ones that uh, we have and uh Many of the library, not many of the libraries have, but a few libraries do is um, one of our recent additions was to the Berkshire Botanical Gardens. Um, that will admit two people over 12 and children under 12 are free. Um, this has uh, been a recent addition because we had so many requests coming in uh, asking about the Berkshire Botanical Gardens. Um, and then another popular local one is uh, when it's open, we have a pass uh, for the Slater, the USS Slater, just over um, in Albany. Uh, that, again, that is free admission for two adults and two children. All you have to do is come to the library and check out the pass. And then I'm also seeing the Museum of Innovation and Science in Schenectady. Oh, one of my favorite, the Sterling and Francine Clark Art Institute in Williamstown. So it seems the Wild Center in Tupper Lake, it seems like you really need transportation to get to many of these. But there's also Albany Institute of History and Art. Um, so you have a wonderful brochure here that people can pick up at the library explaining the past program and giving a full list of the locations and limitations and opportunities. Yeah, so uh, at at uh, both uh, Troy, Maine, and our branch, we have these flyers, and what they will explain to you are the pass programs, and inside we have the passes we have, their addresses, their hours, and um, what benefits you get from getting those passes. And I see every all of them are available at the Troy, Maine branch, but some of them are also available at the Lansingburg branch. Um, 
if people don't come in for the for the program, I know that there's some way of looking this up in the catalog, and I can't remember what the secret is to finding the museum passes in the catalog. Yes. Um, so um, they are actually, when you look up them up in the catalog uh, at home, um, when it, for example, again, Mass Mocha, it's on the mind a lot because it's a very popular pass. There are many books uh, about the Mass Mocha, but one of the items uh, on the list, and I apologize if I'm speaking too much like a librarian here, will, will be Museum Pass. Um, so in the catalog, it should be clearly marked as Museum Pass. Can you search for Museum Pass to see the, all of the, the listings, or do you have to search for each, each uh, museum by name? Um, in the catalog, it will be coming up, if you put it in as a keyword, it will come up as as the museum pass that you've uh, searched for. Um, but on many of the websites on the libraries, not just here in Troy, but you can find them on other library websites, um, they will have a place where they have their passes listed. Very cool. And I know Albany has them and Bethlehem, so a number of different places. The description for this segment on our on our website, mediasanctuary.org, will have a link to find all the different libraries in the area. Uh, now, I know people have said they've been frustrated because it's first come, first serve for getting the passes, and they've had some trouble getting passes. Do you have suggestions for how people might increase their odds of getting something? Um. We, we, while we cannot uh, reserve them for you, uh, calling ahead, uh, you can, we, you can ask uh, if they are available. Um, also, uh, the weekends are the busy time for these to go out, which understandably you may be, uh, everyone may be busy. Um, and then knowing ahead of time sometimes um, for like the art museums, if you know when a show is opening and you can get it a couple days ahead of time, that can really help because once the show's uh, new exhibits or things start opening, that's when the passes really start going out very quickly. And you have to come to the library and get a physical item for the pass, right? It's not like you can print something out on your computer. Yes, they are physical passes. Okay. Uh, Anything else you want to add? Um, among our other things that you may not know about, um, it may not be looking like it today, but when we do have snow on the ground, here at Troy, Maine, we do have snowshoes that you can check out. Say what? Yes, we have uh, snowshoes. It's part of our growing library of things. So when there's actually some snow on the ground, you can come to the Troy Public Library. Um, we just have some information on it that we always let you know ahead of time. And we have, uh, snowshoes that you can check out. And with poles and everything? Uh, some, uh, some poles, um, we got the initial set of snowshoes, uh, with some grant money and working with another organization. So do we have poles for every single pair? Not every single pair, but for most. So you mentioned the Library of Things, and it just amazes me. I did the 36er expedition where I went to all 36 libraries in Albany and Rensselaer County, and it was so interesting to see the stuff that different libraries had, cookie tins and all sorts of stuff. What are some other things in Troy Public Library's Library of Things? Um, 
The other thing that we have is um, it's a program we've been starting is um, um, blood pressure monitors in our library of things. Um, those were, again, part of a, a, a working with another organization to add those to our collection to make those available to the community. That's terrific. Okay, so that was Ian Houck, head of adult services at Troy Public Library for another few days at least. He's heading out to literally greener pastures from downtown Troy to East Greenbush. Ian, thanks so much, and it's been great working with you through the years. It's been fun talking with you. And this is Bria Barthel for Hudson Mohawk Magazine. You can find more stories on the libraries of the Capital Region on our website at mediasanctuary.org. For those of you just tuning in, I'm Sina Bazila-Hickey. And I'm Jacob Boston. You're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network on WOOCLP 105.3 FM Choi, WOOGLP 92.7 FM Choi, WOOSLP 98.9 FM Schenectady, WOOALP 106.9 FM Albany, and streaming online at mediasanctuary.org. This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. If you like what you hear, you can support this program by telling a friend. Find today's stories and more at mediasanctuary.org. Brea also has you covered if you love exploring and learning about nature. Friends of Five Rivers Environmental Education Center offers offers a 450-acre center that includes nature education programs for kids, teens, and adults. This is Bria Barthel for Hudson Mohawk Magazine, and today I am in the Five Rivers Environmental Education Center, an incredible resource in Bethlehem, to talk with Paulette Dedukshin, who is the director of the Friends of Five Rivers. So, Paulette, welcome back to Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Thank you. Good to be back, Bria. Thank you for the opportunity. And Friends of Five Rivers is the nonprofit associated with the state uh, Five Rivers Environmental Education Center. Tell us a little bit about Friends of Five Rivers and about Five Rivers itself. Yes, so as you mentioned, we are the nonprofit support arm of the Department of Environmental Conservation's owned and operated Five Rivers Environmental Education Center here in Del Mar, Bethlehem area over 450 plus acres of just gorgeous and scenic uh, forest and wetlands to explore. Um, And we are a very small nonprofit, but we are doing mighty things for environmental education. And that's thanks to supporters and members and our volunteers. And when you talk about the 400 whatever acres, there's lots of free trails here. Can you just mention what we might see if we come to Five Rivers? We have uh, 10 miles of trails that you could hike, walk. Uh, Animals are not allowed because we are a uh, nature preserve. Animals beyond the ones that are here naturally. Of course, (laughs) domestic animals um, are not allowed because we have a lot of birders and we have a lot of um, natural wildlife and inhabitants to the area. And of course, we want to preserve that and we don't want to scare them off or introduce anything to the area that would cause any uh, disease. 
Okay, so leave your dogs at home, but bring your eyes because there is so much to see here. Eyes and ears and just all your senses because nature is free and for everybody to enjoy and connect with. So you, before I so rudely interrupted you, you were talking about the volunteers and membership and the ways that Friends of Five Rivers does what it does. So what do you do? (laughs) So we are probably most known for our guided school programs, GSP programs or outdoor classroom for school age children and teenagers. We also have family programming Uh, Starting with age two for uh, our toddlers, absolutely, to introduce them to the wonderful world of nature. Um, However, what people may not realize is that we also have adult programming that we offer. So uh, there's no age limit to learning and especially learning about nature and the environment around you. I, truth be told, I have taken part in many of the adult programs, including Talk and Trek, or Trek and Talk, I can't remember the, the, the sequence, and tell us a little bit about that, because I loved them, and I want to be sure to get it in. Yes, Talk and Trek, we're actually offering our winter Talk and Trek courses right now, and you can go to our website at friendsoffiverivers.org to learn more about um, exploring winter activity or growth called galls. Uh, you could learn about um, tree ID by buds and scars. There's just a lot that we um, offer to the public by our environmental educators that work for Friends of Five Rivers. Uh, Nancy Conway and Nancy Payne are just, if you've ever had an encounter with them, they are just a wealth of information and joy. The joy they have with nature and science is just overflowing and exudes on to any participant uh, of these programs. The thing that most impressed me with each of the Nancys is that people could ask any question about anything related to nature, and they came up with very interesting answers that often even expanded on the question that was asked. It's just as exuberantly as Paulette is talking about the Nancys, they are even better when you take their programs. Absolutely. I love how you say the Nancys. They are known as our Nancys here. And um, yes, they are just, again, a, a wealth of information. And they also encourage you to explore and question and find answers for yourself, which is what science is all about. Especially in these times of sort of an anti-science bent in American culture, it is so refreshing to be with people who support science, understand science, share it, encourage us to think about the world around us and to think about what's happening and what we're seeing. Yes, absolutely. We um, actually, right before this interview, I was involved with a, uh, a book club that Nancy Conway runs in the off season, if you will. There's really no off season, but our guided school program uh, operates with uh, volunteer instructors. 
And when it's off season, she offers a book club for the instructors to come together. Uh, and every month she offers a, a, a different book to read and um, comment on and come together and discuss. And we just read and had the author of A Field Guide to a Field Station, 80 Years of Research at the Hayek Preserve. And it was so interesting because Nancy Conway mentioned that it was the very last line of the book that really struck her. Um, the, the book itself is very fascinating, um, science-based, easy to, to read and navigate uh, for the average layperson. But um, she said that, and I jumped to the last sentence, and I'd like to read that here. It says, COVID-19 crisis. Uh, the COVID-19 crisis sheds new light on climate change and it affects and its effects that may accelerate solutions. At the very least, it reveals the fact that humans cannot be healthy unless the planet is healthy too. And I thought that was very powerful in the book and states a lot about nature and our environment and what we all need to continue learning and doing for the health of ourselves and uh, everything around us. And that book, again, is A Field Guide to a Field Station. Uh, now, we talked about the trails here, the 10 miles of trails, and I understand you got some money recently from a trails group or program. What was that all about? Yes, the Parks and Trails New York uh, offers a partnership grant, and we applied for it in September and just found out a few days ago that we were one of 27 awardees throughout the state of New York. And so Friends of Five Rivers is just honored to be one of the recipients and so very excited about the opportunity that brings with it. We will be using the money to enhance our awareness and outreach of who we are, what we do, what we offer, and the fact that we are membership-driven. Um, so we, we do need our uh, people out there to consider membership with us to support uh, what we do and advance our mission of environmental education and land preservation. And this grant will also help us to uh, boost our volunteer core as well, which again, we cannot do anything we do without our volunteers. So uh, you've mentioned that volunteers help to run the guided school programs. What other ways can people volunteer? There are a lot of ways from uh, special events to bluebird monitoring to a greeter at our visitor center front desk. Uh, and as you said, we do have our guided school program instructors. So if you love nature, have an interest in, in nature and continuing education and science, and also uh, are in awe and inspired by children who love to learn, then those are the perfect criteria for being involved with Friends of Five Rivers as a volunteer in any capacity, and especially with our guided school programs. We're always looking for more volunteers on any level, but um, it takes somebody with a lot of uh, love for learning and teaching and handing that off to children to be one of our guided school program instructors. We have some pretty uh, intense and interesting trainings that go on. 
Okay, that's great. So again, this is the Five Rivers Environmental Education Center in Delmar, Bethlehem, I guess. Uh, it's worth the trip. It's open year round, 10 miles of amazing trails with maps and guides. And this was Paulette Duduchin, the director of Friends of Five Rivers, talking with me, Bria Barthel, for Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Thanks so much, Paulette. Thank you. Link for more information can be found with this story on our website. Cafe Euphoria is celebrating the Lunar New Year with live music, drag performances, food, and more. To tell us about this, we now jo- we are we're now joined by Peter Huang. Welcome to Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be talking about this uh, cultural event. So. Many people in cultures observe the lunar or observe the lunar calendar as the or we go by the Gregorian calendar. I think that's the more I guess the wide the wider used calendar. But the lunar calendar is a different calendar. Can you tell us a little bit about the basics of what that is and what the lunar calendar entails? Yeah. That's a a good point. So when we use the phrase Lunar New Year, we're actually talking about the celebration of the Spring Festival, which is a a Pan-Asian celebration uh, celebrated using the the lunar calendar, as you've alluded to before, uh, across different traditions. And it's it's a simplification because many people used to think that that China was the only country that celebrated a so-called Chinese New Year, but it was in fact East Asian, so Korean, Japanese, and, and, and Chinese. But also because the lunar calendar, the lunar new year is in fact a spring festival, uh, many different cultures across Asia welcome in the spring with different festivals. If not, the, the spring festival in, in East Asia, Nauruz, which is the welcoming of spring in Persia or uh, in India as well with the, hin- with the Hindu solar calendar. And we do want to get to the event at Cafe Euphoria, but you brought a beautiful bounty of of artifacts. And I just want to talk about, since we're on the the historical and cultural aspect of it, could you give us, could you give our listeners a little sense of what we're looking at and what you've brought? Oh, absolutely. So the Lunar Lunar New Year celebration that we have planned at Cafe for is supposed to be a multi-sensory experience, meaning that you're exploring not only the audio-visuals, so the live musical performances, the the different artwork displayed from different cultures. We have East Asian calligraphy. We have uh, pottery from Taiwan and, and Japan, as well as kanji and, and hangul, so Japanese and Korean characters on rice paper that will be displayed at the event. We will also have cuisine that are featured from different regions of, of East Asia, Southeast Asia, India too, and uh, live musical performances from Vina Chandra, who is uh, an Indian sitar maestro uh, hailing from Uttar Pradesh in in northern India and a disciple of Ravi Shankar, one of the most well-known, if not the most well-known sitar player in the world. Studied under his tutelage, went to all of his performances uh, as as for uh, cultural, if not spiritual, significance. And... Based off of this, we, we really hope to emphasize the cross-linguistic, the cross-cultural, the cross-religious, uh, since this does affect Buddhist, Zoroastrian, Shia Ismaili, and, and other East Asian pagan religions. Uh, as we're on the, the topic of the culture and how you celebrate the Lunar New Year, 
what are some of the dishes and some of the foods that you guys are going to have at the event? Yeah, so I actually brought a list if if I could let's go through <laughs> some of this to say, yeah. yeah. These beautiful artifacts as well as information about There will documents. be a picture of of these uh, on our yeah. website. Yeah. <laughs> so I have a a, a photo here from a Facebook post listing all of the different types of cuisine. We have chana masala and lentil veggie soup, which was actually a recipe provided by Vaivina Chandra, which is a symphony of flavors with the goodness of lentils and veggies, and kaduki sabji, which is a delightful squash dish from India that, that also features a, a blend of different spices. Cucumber salad from Korea, winter spring rolls from Vietnam, vegan pho, which is a Vietnamese noodle soup, paratha from, again from India, which is plain and potato-filled uh, bread, breads with, with different flavorful and spiceful sauces, mango coconut rice from Southeast Asia, Japanese gyoza, okonomiyaki with salmon, bacon, and tofu varieties, which I actually brought for y'all in the studio to try, mm-hmm. and nianguo, which is a traditional treat from, from uh, Fujian in China, which showcases the, the diversity of, of Chinese restaurateurs here who come from that specific province. So when I was living in Brooklyn, I believe it was a Malaysian restaurant that I went to for uh, a New Year's meal. And there was like a special little rice cracker and there was a, um, I think, a little lottery ticket. So there are also these customs that come with eating and food. Um, could you talk about that part of, of the celebration with food? Oh, yeah. Uh, spood, if not a, a culinary experience, is a spiritual uh, a spiritual experience in, in various East Asian traditions. You know, uh, there are stories in, of dumplings being likened to, to gold and silver ingots. And the more dumplings that you consume relative to, in the, at least in the Chinese tradition for Lunar New Year, the more wealth you're said to accumulate yeah. over the year, and so on and so forth. I like that. And yeah, rice cakes and, and all are certainly a sweet treat. Um, you know, uh, and, and also in the, I, I can only recall because I, I personally celebrate, uh, Nauruz, which is in the Persian tradition. Uh, there are things that come in, in groups of seven and it's, it's very significant to try, uh, foods beginning with the letter, the Persian letter S. Mm. Um, I like that. Uh, to talk about this dragon here. Yeah. We have this amazing piece it's a dragon. I don't know specifically what it's made of, but it just looks absolutely amazing. Can you tell us a little bit about what this is? Yeah, so this is going to be... The, the artifact that you're referring to is, in fact, a, a Japanese Kutani uh, lion. And it's... Oh, it's a lion. Yeah, it's a lion, which, yeah, it looks very similar to a dragon, which, ironically, we have a 3D printed dragon here as well. And it, it all fits the, the Pan-Asian theme of uh, uh, a Japanese lion, Taiwanese porcelain pottery featuring uh, natural items as well as a peacock. In fact... Mike. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> we just missed that. Um, it's it's Pan-Asian artwork featuring like a Japanese Kutani lion, which is porcelain, East Asian pottery from, from Taiwan, which features natural uh, navy, uh, navy blue background with uh, flowers and, and peacocks and 3D printed microfilamented dragon, which is common with the Chinese tradition. And a little dragon egg, which I know the viewers can't see, but if you open it up, actually, this egg has a little mini dragon in it, a baby dragon. 
Oh, amazing. That's, yeah. that's, that's sick. I Which know, that's will cool. all be displayed on the day of the event. Yeah, they're often at Cafe Euphoria, and I've Absolutely. always admired their, their luminous. And um, we were talking about the year that we're coming into, at least on the uh, Chinese calendar. It's it's coming into the dragon, right? You believe. You told me, right? Yeah. So we're so, coming out of the rat into the dragon. What kind of characteristics does that in, uh, entail for the year? What what does that foreshadow? Um. So if you know the story associated with the Chinese zodiac and, and the great race that was featured... On a, a race which was between different animals and who would get to be uh, placed on, on which part of the cycles. You know, the dragon came in second place because the rat leaped off of its head and, and sprinted towards the finish. So the dragon was uh, expected to win, but, you know, b- b- because of his might and because of his, his, his prowess and capabilities, but was in fact beaten by the rat who was clever. So I guess it's a, it's a compliment to... People who are clever, you know, <laughs> people with the facade of, like, strength. <laughs> and my sister is born in the year of the dragon, and that's what we always talk about. Um, <laughs> just tell us a little bit about, just a little overview, is what's happening, where is it at, and when it's taking place. Yeah, so it's a Pan-Asian Lunar New Year celebration, of the year of the dragon, which is happening Saturday, February the 10th from 6 to 9 p.m. at Cafe Euphoria. The address is 225 River Street, Troy. And everyone's welcome. And if you go to this location, you can make reservations and and find out about ticket information. We have about one minute left. So, um, Peter, what's your connection to the Lunar New Year? Why is this uh, important celebration that you want to bring to Troy? Um, Well, definitely one of the concerns that I had preparing this was focusing on cross-sectional identities and trying to demonolithicize or or deconstruct what people prop up to be to large blocky images of what a quote-unquote Chinese New Year is when it, a quote-unquote Chinese New Year is when it really is a Lunar New Year celebration coupled with the fact that we are a tr- uh, queer and trans cafe so there are often queer and trans people that are disenfranchised or excluded from these types of celebrations um, in their Chinese, Korean, Indian uh, religious spaces. So we want to provide an alternative to that and and see members of all different cultural, linguistic, and, and ethnic identities, as well as queer and trans identities. We even have an East Asian drag performer, Kimono Drag, which, who will be a part of the performance itinerary, and uh, an opening religious ceremony by uh, a Buddhist priest from the Albany Buddhist Sangha. So... You know, it's it's definitely a, a variety performance as well. Appreciate you coming in for the interview. Um, we look forward to celebrating the Lunar New Year if you're going to be there, and just in general, if you do celebrate, Happy Lunar New Year from us at the Media Sanctuary. And thank you to Peter for coming in and kicking it with us for a little bit. No hey, problem. Can you remind us where to get more information? The website again. Yeah. So to clarify, uh, we have. The links for uh, ticket information posted on our social media, uh, Cafe Euphoria's Facebook and Instagram. We do have a, a ticket leap link, which people can sign up uh, for, and there's a, a URL associated with that. Or you could come to our physical location and, and, and purchase tickets and make reservations. Thank you so much. No problem. 
So next on the episode, uh, on this week's The Rhythm of the Rebellion, Taina Seeley speaks with Evan Greer, a powerhouse trans and queer activist, writer, and musician based in Boston. They talk about how many things, uh, including the origins of riot folk, as well as the beginning of Evan's life as a musician. Welcome to another episode of The Rhythm of Rebellion. I'm your host, Taina Asili, and today I am thrilled to speak with Evan Greer, a powerhouse trans and queer activist, writer, and musician based in Boston. Evan's journey is a dynamic interplay of musical wit, grassroots activism, and a fervent dedication to justice. She has gracefully evolved her sound from riot folk roots to a more layered indie pop aesthetic with an anarcho-punk soul. Her recent album, Spotify is Surveillance, has garnered praise from NPR, Rolling Stone, and Pitchfork. Beyond her musical endeavors, Evan serves as the director for Fight for the Future, a digital rights nonprofit. An eloquent commentator on TV and radio, Evan passionately advocates for issues related to free speech, technology, and human rights. Hey, Evan. Thank you so much for joining me. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Thanks for having me on. So for me, this interview is about sharing what I love about you with the world. But also, you know, I know that there are pieces of your story that I don't know a lot about. And I think the piece that I was really thinking about, like, do I actually know how Riot Folk came about and some of these early years of your music life? So I thought we could start there. Yeah, for sure. I mean, for me, music and politics have always been pretty inextricably linked. The very first song I ever wrote was a few days after 9-11. I was a high school student um, and could pretty quickly see that the reaction of our government was going to be a push toward war and violence to meet violence. So yeah, I was kind of starting to get wrapped up in the growing anti-war movement at that time. But it was also when I had started, I picked up an acoustic guitar, I was like learning, you know, I remember like playing that song at my like high school assembly or something like that. Hmm. And like having a few teachers come up to me and being like, you know, I've been wanting to say something, but like, I was a little afraid to like speak up because like this just happened. Um, And that was sort of just like a window into like, oh, like songs can be powerful. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I mean, one of the first times I ever performed in front of people was at a big anti-war protest that I helped organize on Boston Common. And that was it for me. Like, I was totally all in on both music and activism. And so when I finally went off to college, you know, I was increasingly starting to be in touch with other musicians that shared those sort of like early left anarchist values that were you know, very active in movements against U.S. imperialism that were very active in the movement around global justice um, following the big protests that helped shut down the WTO in Seattle. And yeah, I just started to meet folks like Ryan Harvey from Baltimore and Adam Rowland. And like we were all sort of solo musicians who were, you know, kind of like bringing forward this like new generation of like protest folk music Um, And that was much less like kind of like, oh, let's all get along, peace, kumbaya, and was more like, we're going to f***ing riot and tear this system to the ground. We started calling ourselves riot folk as like a genre almost. And so, yeah, a few of us had the idea to form a collective to kind of pool the resources from the music that we were making. We were totally at that time self-producing everything, recording everything on like 
cheap microphones in our basements, but then also owning the means of distribution. We spent a lot of time like in people's college, like, you know, computer labs using every CD burner on every PC in like a lab (laughs) with like 20 computers to burn, you know, hundreds and even thousands of of CDRs that we were selling Mm -hmm. or giving away at the time. We really rejected the idea of like corporate record labels or even copyright as kind of like a mechanism for controlling the distribution of our music. We kind of bought into that early free culture idea of like music and creativity should be free and we should find other ways to collectively ensure that musicians and artists are compensated for our labor. And really the biggest piece of it was we had a website where we put all of our music up for free download. You know, that's like super common now, right? Like everyone has a band camp or like everyone's music is on streaming services or whatever. But like back then, like that was not a thing that you could just like go to a website and listen to hundreds of songs by like a group of artists. And so it really did like take on a life of its own. And it went a little viral. We had like a cute little logo that was like two people in like bandanas holding hands and holding like banjos and guitars or whatever. And like that's sort of like the utopian vision of it. You know, mm-hmm. and then there was a lot of shortcomings of it too. We we spent a lot of time arguing over like what to do and and you know how to structure our collective. I think for most of us, we've had a big evolution in our politics since then. Mm-hmm. I mean, just to say it, like everyone in that collective was white, right. and it, was, it wasn't until later that like I think we developed a more significant or serious anti-racist analysis. I think we also had, again, we're very into this idea of like music should be free um, without necessarily having a strong analysis of what does that mean for like who gets to make music or who right. has the privilege to tour or make an album, et cetera. Right. And so I think like we were young, we were idealistic, we had some good ideas. And over time, we also began to interrogate some of our assumptions or, you know, things that we took for granted. I mean, you have so many different facets of of you you know so there's this piece and then of course we have your work with fight for the future you know which is like a whole nother realm what are some campaigns that are happening right now that you think that we need to be aware of in this work i mean for me one of the reasons i got into this work is because it was so clear to me that the free and open internet as a tool is the only reason that anyone has ever heard my music And having access to that megaphone was essential for me as an independent artist, as a trans artist at a time when like no one, like Rolling Stone was not writing about trans singer songwriters when I first got started. Now they do. Um, But like that was not a thing in like the early 2000s or whatever. But like the internet was a thing. And so defending that tool and artists' ability to use it is crucial. But the flip side of that is that we've seen how big tech companies and exploitative technologies are very much weaving their way into the music industry and affecting artists negatively in a bunch of ways too. And so I'd say there's maybe like three main things that I think artists should be paying attention to in the technology policy space. So the big one is artificial intelligence. Everyone's talking about it. Um, And Fight for the Future has been pretty prominent on this. We've helped organize a boycott of um, big name artists like Tom Morello and Zach De La Roca from Rage Against the Machine, many others who are boycotting venues like Madison Square Garden that use facial recognition surveillance. And that's actually gotten a bunch of venues to now sign on to commit to saying, we won't use this type of technology in our venue. We wanna make sure that people feel safe coming here and know that they're not gonna be discriminated against by a racist algorithm. 
So that's a big one. And we do have a campaign, um, banfacialrecognition.com slash venues, where folks can sign on if they want to join the boycott. The other aspect of AI is around generative AI. So, you know, folks definitely were paying attention to the explosion of ChatGPT, but there's also now concerns about like, you can click a button and make a song that's borrows from other people's music or artwork. And what does that mean? And I think that we need a lot more complexity in that conversation. There's been what I would argue are sort of overly simplistic narratives, like all AI is theft, for example, Mm -hmm. or equating, you know, an individual artist in their bedroom using an AI tool with a giant corporation like Disney using AI to fire a bunch of people and and use the AI to take their jobs, essentially. Right. And I think, we, you know, like with anything else, we need to make the conversation about power. Who has power and who is being exploited? And what we need is a world where artists have some power over our work and over the tools that we use. And then the elephant in the room is Spotify, right? right. Which is incredibly dominant. You basically can't be a musician and not care about your Spotify streams. But Spotify is like Instagram or YouTube or anything else. They run a surveillance capitalist business model that's basically about monitoring what people listen to and using that information to serve ads. And so that business model is fundamentally incompatible with basic human rights and democracy and with artistry, right? Because Spotify doesn't actually care if music is good or bad. They are happy for you to stream lo-fi beats all day, whether they're AI generated or, you know, some studio in Sweden that they hired made right. them so they don't have to right. pay royalties. But I think like we're at a moment where we desperately need to um, figure out new models for ensuring that artists can be heard and can be compensated for our labor That's and to right. ensure that music isn't getting made to please a robot rather right. than like for thousands of years, humans have created music for each other. Um, Mm -hmm. that's the future I want. I want us to keep making music for each other, not for some algorithm. That's right. Listen to the full episode of this podcast at therhythmofrebellion.com. Thanks for listening. Oh, that is the series The Rhythm of Rebellion by Taina Asili with editing support from Moses Nagel. And we have those 10-minute versions thanks to Moses Nagel. And the longer episodes are usually like half an hour and they're really wonderful. So you can find that information more and more at our website mediasanctuary.org and that's our show we hope you've enjoyed this episode of the hudson mohawk magazine i'm sina bazila hickey and i'm jacob boston our engineer is sina bazila hickey we always appreciate we thank all our volunteers who made the episode possible headlines from mark dunley well we have uh, all of our volunteer producers are mark dunley bria barthel uh moses nagel taina asili and thank you jacob boston you're welcome i appreciate it this program covers stories of social and environmental justice produced by the community for the community and is supported by independent donations. We appreciate you listening. Until next time.